Well, hey there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Blank. Super excited that you're here to learn about financial freedom with real estate. I remember when I first got started with apartment buildings, you know, it was very exciting to close on your first deal. And I thought, my gosh, the money's made when you buy, right? That's what they teach you in real estate school. And certainly if you're flipping houses, that may be the case. But in apartment buildings, it's quite a bit different than that because uh, while you have to buy right, if you don't execute on your plan to increase rents, reduce expenses, you are not going to make the money you think you are. So therefore, the money is actually made in execution. And that execution part is, uh, is all about asset management. The asset manager really manages the property manager, that component. So you as a syndicator, one of you, either you yourself or one of your partners is going to be tasked with managing and operating the asset. So uh, there's really three roles in a syndication, right? There's, uh, there's acquisitions, there's capital raising, and there's operations or management. There's going to be a fourth one later on when you get a little bigger and that is marketing. We start talking a lot about that. But right now, when you're starting out, there's really three. Uh, and so when you close your first deal, you get into the operations side. And hopefully someone on your team is a good operator, a good manager, likes systems, uh, likes numbers, and is good at executing uh, and hitting numbers over time through other people as well. That is considered the asset management function. And I can tell you, when we first got started, they didn't teach you in real estate stool that asset management is actually more of an active sport and not so much of a passive sport because we thought that asset management was really about monitoring numbers and it is it's uh, you know about talking to your property managers and it is also and that really works very well when things are going well but when things are not going well you know and the property manager is not doing their job you as an owner have to get much more involved in the deal right but how do you do that how do you get more involved in the deal? How do you know that something is not working? And then how do you solve it? So to help us unpack that today is Daniel Simpson. Daniel Simpson is, a, is our asset manager for Nighthawk Equity. Nighthawk Equity is our investment firm. And we're honored to have him join us a little bit over a year ago, our full-time asset manager. And he brings with him 25 years of asset management, property management experience as well. And what a difference he has made in our organization to really bring up our performance and our consistency across the portfolio, uh, introducing new best practices of that. So I wanted to bring him on on board and, and really talk about what is asset management really? Not And not just at our level where we have full-time asset managers, but really even from the beginning, right? Because a lot of things that we were doing or not doing was a major mistake that led to other mistakes down the road. Because as you'll see, asset management is a much more active role. And so it sets your expectations a little bit more about your operation role. And, you know, I used to think that, you know, this is a, a passive investment, right? Passive income is where it is. And I no longer really believe that there's really no real passive investment unless you're earning interest and dividends off somewhere. But even passive investment in real estate is largely passive, but it's not completely passive. It's less leveraged. You as an owner, you have to get involved. You have to watch. And that's one of the main errors and mistakes I made when I got in the restaurant business where, you know, I was, in, quote, the silent investor, the partner, and I had an operating partner who ran the whole thing. And it really went well for a while, for a while until it didn't. And I didn't catch it for far too long at that point the damage has been done and it was unrecoverable and resulted in a complete loss of the entire you know restaurant portfolio lesson learned there so you got to watch your investment and sometimes you have to get active you have to get into the weeds it's not really what we love to do but sometimes it's necessary before we get into the interview with daniel 
What I want to tell you about our mentoring program, really excited about that. It's really the only one where we guarantee results. If you don't do a deal in your first 12 months working with us, we'll continue working with you until you do. We want to get you to that first deal. That is the magic marker, at which point the law of the first deal kicks in, and your second and third will happen in almost uh, in rapid, almost automatic succession. So our mentoring program is you're working full-time with a syndicator, and you're going to be working full-time with someone to get you in, a, in your first deal. So if that's for you, if you value mentoring and you think that's a way to accelerate your goals and avoid some of the more biggest mistakes, then check us out. We're at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor, and you can schedule a strategy session with us there. All right, let's get in the interview with Daniel Simpson. Here we go. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey, Daniel, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Hey, you have so much experience, like 25 years worth of experience with multifamily, other asset classes, property management, asset management. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, short story. Uh, you know, I've been doing this a long time, almost 30 years now. I've worked in uh, residential real estate, multifamily, commercial, industrial, Started out in the service industry for multifamily and uh, landed right back in multifamily after it was all said and done. <laughs> it's the niche I love. Yeah. Wh why do you love that of all the things that you could be you know, managing? Well, I think, uh, you know, in the last several years, the C-class renovations, B-class renovations have been kind of key to providing good or great housing to a segment of our population that really needs it and deserves it. So it's been fun to watch and do, and you get to see uh, you're successful on your end, and you get to to help people out at the same time. Yeah, that's right. What exactly is asset management? Like, can, can you talk about what that what that means? Yeah, sure. For me, asset management is a step beyond property management. I help make sure that the investors' goals are met. I help you know everywhere from acquisition to disposition in ensuring that uh, returns are, are on target. We don't you know, violate any principles or rules as we go along and just kind of work from a little bit higher level maybe than property management does in guiding the ships. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, early on, we made a lot of mistakes around asset management and property management. And, you know, having having worked with you, uh, you know, it's, it's clear that our idea of asset management was quite a bit different. I mean, our idea of asset management was really just looking at the numbers and the reports each week, having a weekly call with a property manager uh, and, and, and kind of making adjustments as we go along. Your approach to asset management is much more hands-on. Uh, you work much closer with a property manager. In fact, it's not just you, but it's after having talked to quite a few other su successful operators who have achieved some scale, the asset management side of the house really works very closely with property management, almost side by side with it, which really was a surprise. So what are some of the common mistakes that people are making around what they think their asset management should be? So, yeah, so uh, uh, each week I speak to each regional manager one or more times on all kinds of topics, mostly financial, uh, revenue streams, potential savings and expenses. Uh, I speak with the site manager as well, but not as frequently. I like to travel and meet with them at least once a month as well. But our discussions are generally in how, how to guide the ship, the property uh, towards its end goal. I help work as an in-between and explain the investors and ownership's uh, uh, goals for the property and help uh, direct on how we can get there. 
both for the revenue and the expense side, as well as appearance and, and projects on the property. So the ideal scenario is what you just described, which is you have your, your weekly call with a regional who, who affects typically one or more properties that, that you may own. And you're really talking about, hey, what do we want to do with this property? Where are we now? Where do we want to go? So we're all clear on what we want to achieve, what our goals are, and how we're going to get there. And then presumably the, the regional then works with the local manager to get that done. Now, that's in an ideal scenario, right? But we had some properties that were far from ideal. And my sense is that we got a lot more involved, not in the weeds, frankly. I mean, not just at the RSA, at the regional level, but at the property management level and even lower leasing, possibly construction. Talk about when that becomes necessary and maybe some examples of where we had to do that and how we did it. Sure. So a lot of time is spent in, in accounting and looking at the numbers for properties. And over time, there's some key indicators that you that you notice, whether it's a turnover rate or a higher than normal vacancy or a lack of success in leasing. And uh, there was one property recently in particular that where we were experiencing severe collection issues. And it turned out that by sort of forensic accounting, you could tell that that uh, things weren't being done timely in the books. For example, the move-outs weren't being timely entered. So they were controlling their, their occupancy on paper by faking the books, basically. So if a tenant had moved out on the 30th of the month and the reporting date was on the 1st, they might wait until the 2nd to report the move-out in the books, uh, making their occupancy look higher than it was. So part of, part of my job as an asset manager is to look for things like that. We do it as well on acquisition, uh, looking at, at comps, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, so let, let, let's focus on some things. We, we also, we, we had, it really comes down to people every time. If you look at every problem we have, it, it is it is a literally a, a single person at some level that causes, that causes essentially problems down the road. I remember one time we had, we had issues with leasing, right? Just getting getting people to pick up the phone, getting the leasing manager to pick up the phone, showing property, being responsive, literally being able to lease up units. And we really had to get in the weeds on, on that. Maybe talk talk about that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, every everybody has a box to rent, right? Uh, and it's the people that actually do the renting. And, you know, experience will tell us that over the years that tenants rent from the staff. They don't rent the apartment itself. And uh, when you have a bad apple working on the staff, it's a problem. And uh, we did experience that. I mean, we had we had traffic that, that was either disqualified, wasn't qualified, or or the leasing staff wasn't able to get to closing, and, and you know, occupancy just plummeted. So so it was uh, part of the asset management's job, and uh, in actual partnership with ownership, in finding somebody that was uh, a really good closer, that personality that we needed for the office. And uh, that's really more into the weeds than you should have to get. And in that case, it turned out the problem was a little bit higher up. And uh, we really, I mean, dug all the way down, like you said, the leasing and maintenance. And uh, I think got it all cleaned up and got the good people in there in, in tandem with the management company. Yeah, I think the sequence is you're looking at these numbers, right? You're looking at different reports, you know, like you're noticing trends, patterns, things, and you're like, and you ask questions. And in your case, you you sometimes go pretty deep with a with a question and, and you tend to uncover things. And a lot of times shining a light on it is enough for them to kind of fix it. But other times it's not. And this was an example 
where the leasing was just awful. And we're like, oh gosh, the leasing manager is, is bad. We should replace the leasing manager. But you're right. It wasn't, while it was the leasing manager, it went higher up. And it wasn't just a manager of the property. It was actually the regional that we finally, and we're like, how can this be? A very competent person manages whatever, six, eight properties. And the culture that was being set by that person was so bad. And the only reason we, we knew that is because this property management company uh, you know, managed other properties. And we're like, well, they're doing a great job here and they're doing a great job there and they're not doing a good job here. And it's like, really, where, where, what is the problem right now? But in that particular case, it was really something where, where you and ownership, you know, partners were like, dude, we got to do something. We can't just sit there. And yes, one solution is to fire a property manager, right? And we certainly talked about that and we did it, in fact, and we'll talk about that in a second. Well, one problem certainly is to fire the property manager, but, but again, that's a very disruptive act of, of very disruptive and versus trying to figure out, well, is the property manager as a whole good? Yes, they are because they're managing other properties. Well, okay, so where's the breakdown in the, in the system? And the breakdown was on multiple levels. It was at the, at the regional level, yes, but also it was literally with the leasing systems below. And, and so we attacked it on two fronts. We, we, we were attacked it from the top down, but also from the bottom up. So we hired a leasing company. I think it was Class A Leasing that we hired and they specialize in leasing. That's all they do. Like they'll go out there and they get on, they get on Facebook and Marketplace and they'll put the ads out, you know, and they'll make the phone ring. And then they, in fact, actually answer the phone and they actually show the properties and they basically do their job for them. And in so doing, we ended up uh, replacing a leasing manager, finding a better one, then training them up essentially on what Class A was, was leasing because they're only there for what, a month or so. And that was way more in my mind than, than an owner would have to do. Your property manager should know how to do that. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. So what do you do? Do you fire them? Right? Like, I mean, right. how do you deal with that? Yeah, right. So so the, the property manager in this case definitely should have known. The management company should have known what was going on. It is sometimes difficult because property managers over time learn how to hide some things like I was speaking of earlier. Uh, but in this case, it was just bad staff. They didn't, they didn't know how to lease. They didn't know how to close. They had great product. And uh, rather than the pressure helping them to succeed, they kind of caved and decided to cover everything up and, and you know hide behind it. So even when we brought class in and class leased 20% of the units in you know, 30, 45 days, management, the on-site management still struggled because they felt competitive rather than collaborative with the leasing company that came in. So th that, that was part of our struggle as well and in, in, in moving up the chain to clean it out. Cause we already knew we had a good product. We had a competitive product. Uh, the rates were competitive. The quality was competitive. Uh, so there was no reason for units not to lease other than the people. Oh yeah. So, uh, but that's a good analysis, right? Is it, is it, what is it? Is it the location? Is it something about the asset itself? No, no, no. Is it the market? No, that's not the, that's it. That's not it. And it's gotta be the people. Right. And that's when you, and that's when you ask yourself the question, is it a particular person? Is it local? Like, is it isolated? Is it higher up or is it systemic as in the entire property management company doesn't really know how to manage properties or maybe not even in, in that area. And again, we're going to get back to that in a, in a, in just a, a second, but you know, it all starts like, here's the thing. If, if you're hitting your NOI numbers based on your pro forma, no one's going to ask any questions. And we have some properties that are like that. They just, they're just, you know, putting out distribution checks every month and they're like, take no time to manage. Then it's the 80, 20 rule, right? 20% of your portfolio takes up 80 freaking percent of your time. And it is right. unbelievable. And so uh, talk about some of the metrics that you watch. Uh, so we have a dashboard. 
And we, you know, every week, every month, depending on what the metric is, we look at certain metrics. Uh, and then depending on what an issue is, we may request additional metrics like traffic numbers, et cetera. So talk about some of the key metrics you watch when the property is going well. And then what do you start watching when things maybe aren't going so well and you're trying to solve a problem? Sure, absolutely. So like everyone else or every owner, I look straight at the NOI first and I look for consistency across the board in the NOI. I look at occupancy, physical and economic. I look at that on a regular basis because it's really cool to have 100% occupancy, but if only 80% are paying, it's a problem. And unfortunately, you can't see that with the NOI, right? So your NOI can remain fairly stable, even though the economic occupancy may be dropping. So you may have another source of income. You may have new tenants paying additional money, whatever it is. So watching all of those together is really important in telling what's really happening at the asset. Uh, another place I like to concentrate is in uh, the age delinquency. Right now, it's problematic because of the CDC guidelines or rules and, and local rules regarding eviction and collections, uh, as well as the PL. Uh, I like to have access to a live PL. It kind of shows me what's going on at the property. It lets me know how much attention the manager might be paying to it when I look across and I see a missing bill or something. So I monitor, you know, a little bit of everything, but those, those are the areas where I concentrate and leasing, of course, what kind of closing ratio they have. You know, if they have 20 prospects come in the office, but they only get one lease, why? Is it because we don't have the right floor plan or is it because the mm -hmm. product isn't what they're looking for? Or is it the rent or is it the person uh, doing the leasing? So those are all things I look at routinely at every property. Now, how do you know this, right? Because you call up the leasing manager and they're like, yeah, I'm doing a great job. Or they're saying, well, the units suck. You know, meanwhile, they suck, right? Like, how do you know? How do you discover the truth? And you know, let's pick on this leasing problem. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, leasing is, I think, is one of the hardest things for property managers to get, to get right. Uh, you know, yeah. how do you discover what the problem is? Well, you know, I, I always start with the people because, uh, you know, honestly, a good salesperson can sell anybody anything, right? Uh, and the same thing happens with leasing. If they like the people in the office enough, they will rent an apartment from you. But, uh, you know, it, it really is. It, it's looking at the comps, what's in the area, and uh, getting a hold of that and then communicating that you know that information to the office staff. Uh, if they know that I know what the other apartments are leasing for, then that kind of shortens the conversation a little bit, right? They can't say, well, it was property A down the street because their rent's cheaper because I already know what's going on in property A. So that's kind of where I start. And uh, you know from over time what a closing ratio should look like. Well, that's right. You know what it, what the average should should look like. And the other thing you know, we, you've done for years and we haven't, uh, you know, until a couple of years ago is you do secret shoppers, right? Talk about how you right. use secret shops. Yep, so absolutely. So uh, secret shops uh, involve a couple of different things. I do use a service a lot of times, and that service can do online, by phone, or in-person shops. Uh, they record uh, audio. They do video if you request it. And it can be very telling as to how a leasing office behaves and how a property is operating. It's, it's a very, very good thing to do periodically, quarterly, uh, semi-annually at least. Uh, and then also, you know, just having one property from one portfolio call another property. Uh, I did that the other day and they actually did fairly well on the phone call. I was surprised because uh, the property they were calling was having some difficulty. 
so the next step is to do it in person and see how they do uh, with an actual showing. But it gives you really good insight as to whether or not the leasing staff is performing as they're supposed to. Now, I remember when we normally, when we buy a property, I mean, there's, you're always trying to optimize various parts of the business and we kind of rotate the focus a little bit. My sense is after we buy a property, we tend to focus mostly on the revenue side of things, mm-hmm. on vacancy and collections and to, and to a lesser extent on other stuff like expenses or work order turnaround, that kind of stuff. Is that about right, you think? Is that kind of the, the, the sequence that you would advise as you get into a, a property? Or what do, you, what do you focus on, let's say, Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4? I would. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. Revenue is key, right? Uh, it's really hard to manage by expenses. Uh, trash costs what it, tra- what it costs. You can't really change that much. But you can certainly add $10 here or $5 there to each unit. Uh, whether it's pest control service or uh, lost keys or penalties for dirty balconies or whatever it is. And then uh, you can you can search for other revenue sources that, that help increase the NOI and the value of the property. You know, as time goes on, you want to look at your contracts or trash contract, cable, phone, especially when you acquire properties. They seem to some, for some reason, they have this abundance of contracts and you want to try and reevaluate those and change them as you go. Uh, one I saw the other day had three layers for phone service. I mean, can't you just call AT&T and get a phone? Why do you need two other people monitoring your service for you? And uh, yeah, so so yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, revenue first, expenses second, and uh, anything ancillary after that. Yeah, yeah and then and then, again, we I think we rotate the focus. We're always trying to focus on something. So once we have, let's say, our 90% occupancy and our revenue numbers, we're like, okay, we're pretty good here, right? Let's focus on the expenses. You know, what are our expenses look like? And you do have to watch your expenses. You know what kind of your budget is. Yeah, typically, that budget right. is crafted with a property manager. And every month, we're getting reports with what the budget is and what the actuals was. And then we would really like a narrative. My gosh, if the expenses yeah. are over, we'd like to know why. So talk about a little bit how you might be able to uh, manage some of the expenses. Right. So so that's true. And, and that that is one really good reason to have an asset manager is the management company will manage to the budget. The asset manager can help push the expenses down, help push the revenue up. Because when the when the property management company sees that they're on budget, all is great, right? Uh, they've done exactly what they said they would do. Not a bit more, not a bit less. So on the expense side, just, just watching to make sure that we aren't overspending on just specific items that might be expensive or that we aren't repetitively spending on something small. Uh, the other day, I found a camera bill for $248 per month for a property for one camera. And uh, you know, my question was, what the heck is this for? Because it wasn't in the budget. I've never heard of it before. And it turned out it's actually a really good idea. It's watching a dumpster. And every time a resident dumps in that dumpster, they're not supposed to use it, they get fined. So they're actually making the 250 up in fines each month. But watching for those little expenses, things like that that change, you can see them on the PL or the GL or the general ledger. It's really helpful. Uh, to your note about the, the variance reporting, we have some, some of our management companies do a really great job, and there's a great narrative that's very detailed down to the extra faucet that they bought. And others aren't quite as detailed, so you kind of have to dig in and ask the question, you know, well, why did you spend this extra $3,500 in maintenance or in supplies? What was that for? 
I, I, I think it's good to ask questions. You mentioned something earlier that you really like to have live reporting, and I agree. Uh, mm-hmm. Back in a day when I first got started, there was much less live reporting, and you would you know, f- frequently to get a, a PDF, you know, whatever, f- the second or third week after they close the books, and you get this report, and you got to weed through it. You can't click down. You can't drill. So it was a lot more mm-hmm. onerous to try to figure out. But now with all the software out there, and uh, the, even the halfway competent property managers have these these software and they're entering stuff real time. And so when you look at expense, it's kind of like when you're using QuickBooks software, you can drill down on the expense, sometimes even to the invoice. But I right. think you're right. You have to ask questions, uh, even just doing an audit on just picking a particular line item and go, hey, show me the invoices of this thing, right? And you want to keep your property manager honest. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Ask, asking the question lets them know you're watching, right? And you're absolutely right. It's really cool. You can take a P&L or a T12 or a GL and you can click all the way down to the invoice on most property management softwares now and see exactly what it was for. But it's still important to ask that manager or that regional manager about that expense so that they know that they're being watched. They know that somebody's keeping an eye on what's going on. So talk about uh, the in-person component. How frequently do, do you visit properties? And then what do you do on these visits? Yep. So I, I visit at least monthly. Uh, if there are issues or projects going on, I'll visit more frequently as needed. I spend my time walking uh, vacant units, uh, visiting with all of the staff. Uh, so I visit with, uh, of course, the regional manager for there and the, and the property manager. But I also like to speak with the leasing agents. Uh, to get their feel for the property and how leasing is going because they're the ones that have to sell it. Uh, so I, I like to probe and see if there's something missing, some tool that they may need or help that they may need to get another dollar, another $10 per month, whatever it might be. I also visit with maintenance to see, you know, kind of the same thing, whether or not they're uh, missing any tools that they might need in order to accomplish work orders more quickly or uh, more efficiently, or if there's something, some systemic problem that they're seeing that hasn't been reported by management. Uh, you know, are you seeing a bunch of tub leaks uh, or uh, air conditioner calls, whatever it might be. And then of course, you know, I, I circle back and I'll, I may look at a file or two for a move in to make sure the, the lease matches, the dates match, the rent matches what's in their system and that it matches our pro forma and the budget. So all in all, you know, a, a solid day at each property, maybe a little bit more depending on how big it is and, and whether or not it has projects going. Now, what about what about a construction, right? So should the property manager handle construction or unit turnover? And if not, what should they handle and, and, and who handles the other stuff that the property manager maybe doesn't handle? Yeah, so there are lots of ways to do that. I've, I've done it several different ways, you know, over the years. I worked for a, a national group that owned uh, their own uh, construction company and literally built from the ground up, then managed their own deals and sold them and, and uh, renovated them as well. Uh, but in this niche market, and I call it a niche market, it's not really a niche anymore. I think that ownership does well to manage their own projects when they can. And to kind of keep it separate from property management. I mean, in reality, property management specialty is filling units, heads on beds, right? And collecting rent. And that's what they should be spending their time doing. Uh, Anytime they're distracted from that, they're not doing it to its fullest potential at the property. 
So in the beginning, Daniel, I thought that property managers handle all this stuff. And maybe they do up to a certain size. When does that stop working, right? Like when, when should you stop? At what size or situation should you not have your property management company handle construction or renovations? So I, I, you know, honestly, I don't think they should at all, unless it's just absolutely necessary on ownership's part, if you don't have another way to do it. You know, it's not technically a conflict of interest, but it's a distraction that they don't really need. So uh, a lot of management companies have a construction division or a maintenance division that'll come in and do that sort of thing. Uh, Usually it's an additional fee, uh, which is fine, uh, but it's still to me, it's proven to be a distraction from their core function. Uh, their core function is to manage the property. Turning turning regular make-ready units is enough. It's hard enough work to get that done. It's hard enough for them to keep good maintenance people on staff. To add renovations or construction to their list, I think, is just very challenging. So how do we handle it then? Or how should one handle it? What is the best practice for handling construction? Yep. So, so a lot of times, uh, you know, ownership like Nighthawk has somebody that's very inept at it and does a very good job of major, of organizing major construction projects. And uh, if, if they have time for that focus, I think that's okay. But in reality, I think, uh, you know, hiring a, a competent GC is really the way to go for construction, uh, particularly exterior work. If you're going to be hitting, you know, 250,000 plus, you need somebody that works with AIA forms in order to get your draws correct and your and your funding back from your uh, lender. If it's smaller projects, you know, maybe maybe you hire somebody local or or you bring somebody in house that can run renovations or uh, smaller construction projects, uh, and that person would act as your GC, and then they would hire subs or or individuals to complete the work. Can the property manager help? So what I'm hearing you say, first of all, is don't have the property manager handle the construction. In -hmm. other words, you want to have a general contractor or a specialist who handles a particular thing. So let's say roof or parking lot or interior renovations or siding. Uh, On the other hand, we kind of got into this, Daniel, of course, with being the passive owners, right? Right. So, So you want to find a balance between the two. How might the property manager be able to help the owner handle construction? So I I think in the beginning, the property manager should sit in meetings and have some input into the project, its scope and timeline. And then it should almost be, you know, the property manager hands hands the GC or or the renovation person the keys, says, here, here you go. And then they get them back when the work's done, basically. So again, you, you don't want to involve them any more than you have to because you don't want them distracted from their core functions. So if, if they are constantly having to do things for renovation or for construction projects, they're not going to be collecting rent or they're not going to be leasing units at the same time. They can't do both. Mm. I think it's important to try and separate those. So, so how does the average syndicator then afford or the, both the time and or the investment to have a general contractor? In other words, what are right. some of the options that the ownership has to manage the construction basically on behalf almost of the property manager, certainly not giving them the keys to do it, but being almost very hands-on. Is there a way, is there a compromise in some way? How could an owner do to handle that uh, well? So, so I think uh, you choose a property manager for your, for your property, your newly acquired property. Uh, you choose a property manager that's experienced in that market. 
So uh, the markets I have experience in, I have a list of contractors that I work with. Uh, so almost any task that I need, I, I have somebody that can come do it for me that I trust. And by hiring that property manager that's local to that market, you're going to have a property manager that has that information. So whether you go, decide to go ahead and delegate to them to let them do the project or not, you can feed, you can, you can feed off of them uh, or get from them their, their information and get the, the local GCs, the local people that are able to complete the job uh, from the property manager and uh, have somebody that you can hopefully trust because the property manager does, you know, maybe, maybe you set up a timeline where, where property management is involved, you know, periodically uh, if you're absentee, you know, if you're local, I, I think if you don't have an asset manager or, or somebody, you know, another person employed that can do it, then, then you would have to oversee it for yourself. And if it's a small property, you know, 100, 150 units, and you don't have five properties being renovated at the same time, I think that's possible. It's not necessarily a best use of your time, but it's possible. Now we've seen it at one of our other property managers, they brought in kind of a construction manager. And typically these construction managers charge like a 5% development fee. So whatever your construction budget is, they will gladly oversee it. They'll go there like a general contractor. Is that a common model? Is that a, is it a compromise as well? It is. So, so I, I've seen that with a lot of management companies. They have a construction division or a maintenance division that's separate and they charge the five, six, seven percent. And I've even seen somewhere they charge the five percent to coordinate work. So if you had a fire, for example, and uh, even, if, even though your insurance company is handling most of the work or you're handling the, the vendor, the uh, construction company, because they have some sort of oversight involvement, they might charge you that fee. Uh, you'd have to read the contract closely to see how that works for your, your individual management company. Uh, but it is common, it's a profit center for them, right? So management companies, their, their profit is not high as a monthly percentage of gross receipts. So they, they look for other places to earn revenue. And uh, construction management or renovation is just one of those places that they have that opportunity. Yeah, that's right. So if you're listening, watching this, uh, uh, building a 5% budget for this kind of construction manager, uh, whether they come through the property manager or you hire them yourself, there's going to be a fee involved. And if you build it into the deal, you have someone, a specialist on the ground handling the construction for you, which will take a huge load off an owner who's typically uh, some, somewhere else. So I think that's really good advice. Now, right. now what, here's the one question, Daniel. Now, you know, at what point, so as, as a syndicator is growing their business, uh, there's not really enough revenue coming in for them to hire anybody, really, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's not going to be revenue to hire a full-time asset manager. But at what point, though, and so, you know, these so typically a lot of syndicators are, are joint ventures, you know, two people or whatever, and one focuses more on the acquisition, maybe someone works uh, focuses more on investor relations, and then one of them has to or should focus on, on operations, and that kind of the built-in asset manager. At one point, though, it makes sense possibly to hire someone, and at what point should one consider hiring an asset manager? Is it the first hire, the second hire? Kind of what scaled are people at when they bring someone in, and how is that person funded? So I think it depends on the skill set of the investors, like you said. Uh, if somebody's really good at operations, then maybe they could they could handle asset management or share it with with another partner for some time. 
Uh, you know, it is difficult because their percentages range from one to 2%. I, I don't think I've seen a lender allow more than 2% for asset management and 2% on a hundred unit deal or 200 unit deal is not going to get you an asset manager, but you could definitely work together uh, to watch uh, what's going on and just keep in mind that, you know, the goal of asset management is to kind of keep an eye on the hen house, right? Watch the property management, make sure they're they're shooting for the goal and taking every opportunity that they can to meet or exceed uh, your goals. But you'll quickly learn, I think, the nuances of the PL. It moves the most. It's the easiest to see change in. And then from there, you you could, uh, if you have access online in particular, uh, watch the bills come through and watch the GL, the general ledger. But I think as soon as possible would be my answer as to when you need an asset manager. Yeah. As soon as you can afford it. Yeah, it really it really requires focus, and you, I mean, I think you identified the major revenue stream is asset the asset management fees, and and when you're first getting started, the asset management fees are like, oh, money in my pocket, this is great. Right. But we figured out very quickly that the asset management fees are actually there for a particular reason, and that is to hire help. So you know, hiring a virtual assistant or a bookkeeper are good uses of asset management fees in the beginning, and then hiring even a part time asset manager who have seen a bunch of numbers. Like you can look at numbers, and you're like, hmm. That's off. That's weird. And, and versus a new person might not look at the same numbers and not notice that issue. And then you start asking questions. And it does require asking questions, regular interaction, and sometimes going going very deep. And then sometimes when there's a problem, you really have to get active. And, and you know, I used to think that there's this thing called passive you know, passive income. You know, I learned right. a long time ago, back in my restaurant debacle that was set up to be a passive investment, that there's no such thing as passive investment. There's certainly leveraged investment and real estate is one of them. But an, an owner, a syndicator should never be so passive as to not know what's going on and to get involved when there's an issue. And so I think you've really uh, showed us that asset management is not a passive activity. It's not uh, looking at a bunch of numbers in a spreadsheet. It's much more active than that. So I appreciate that. Daniel, how can uh, people connect with, uh, with you? Uh, well, they can reach me through my, my email anytime at daniel at nighthawkequity.com. That's the best way. They can send me an email, questions, comments, anything they want. And uh, we could set up a Zoom if somebody wanted to as well. That's awesome. I appreciate you uh, bringing your years and years of experience to us here at Night Nighthawk and also uh, to this uh, community of dealmakers. So thanks again, Daniel. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. All right. The lesson is really while leveraged, okay, there's no such thing as completely passive income. You should not be sitting in your ivory tower looking to stock tech to go by and patting yourself on the back. Okay. That is not what syndication is all about. That does not mean that you yourself have to watch everything. There's going to be maybe someone on your team, uh, one of your partners who really enjoys operations and management, then have that person run the project. Make sure you pick a good property manager and make a change if that property manager is not going to work out. If you have the right property manager, okay, your quality of life will be completely different than someone when you have a poor property manager. And it's really at the company level. We talked about having an issue at a, a management level, and that is still a major issue. But 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 it, it wasn't an issue on the on the larger property management company who, aside from maybe an individual or two at the at the top, was actually performing very well. So you have to try to understand what the problem is, and that's the key. Okay, you have to know, you have to know when there is a problem. And looking at numbers helps. Asking questions is even better. And sometimes you got to audit. 
And you audit in different ways. You audit by asking for receipts for a particular class of expenses in a month. You audit by sending in a secret shopper. Oh, yeah, we're doing great. We're doing great. Well, you're never going to pick up the phone and everything was dirty. I know that because I sent a secret shopper. When you go to the property, don't always announce your visit, right? Because when you announce your visit, then everybody, suddenly everything is clean. And when, as soon as you leave, it all goes to pot, right? So, so you, sometimes you have to audit and you have to keep your manager and your team, you have to keep them uh, honest. So sometimes you really have to get in the weeds. If you discover a problem, okay, we as entrepreneurs, we solve problems. And sometimes you have to get in the weeds. And it really is an 80-20 rule. 20% of the portfolio creates 80% of the, of the work. And then sometimes you do have to get in the weeds. Sometimes you have to hop in a plane. You have to figure out what the problem is. You have to interview, find a general contractor, fi replace somebody. Sometimes you have to solve a leasing problem. Okay, you are the entrepreneur. The buck stops with you, the owner. And sometimes you do have to get involved. It's like that in any business. Certainly delegate as much as you can, but sometimes you have to get involved. You have to be prepared for that. I'm not saying you should do it all the time, but you have to be prepared to do that. And uh, the good news about this whole thing, while it sounds a little irritating, and maybe it is, what I love about multifamily is that time fixes things. Time fixes things. And you look at that in almost every, actually almost every multifamily deal gone bad that I know of was somehow righted with time and effort. And that is that is true. And that is because, you know, typically we're buying in relatively good staple markets. People need housing. There's a shortage of housing. And if we just solve our people problem that we have with these properties, once we have that problem solved, the ship will right itself. So the only thing that will cause is will cause delays in our pro forma, which means we might have comfortable conversations with our investors. We were expecting to distribute this month we're not expecting to distribute this month. And here's why. This is a very, very uncomfortable conversation to have with your investors because you want to make them happy. You want to distribute what you said. You want to do what you said to do. Sometimes some things are just simply out of your control. You hire the best property manager you can. You get in there and they don't do the job. Despite you getting in there, you realize that the management company is simply wrong and you have to replace them. Now you've lost six months. You got to get a new property manager and they have to get up to speed. And you're still not 100% sure they're the right management company, right? And so sometimes you have to go through these things. But the bottom line is, in every case where things maybe were delayed, at the end of the day, when it was time to sell these assets, we still were able to hit the IRR. Now, maybe we didn't hit the cash on cash return all the time, but typically the ship writes itself. And if you call for a five-year sale and it takes you six years to, to achieve your goals, so be it. So that is good news about multifamily. In many businesses, it's almost, almost impossible to recover. So that is the encouraging thing. My message to you is really pay attention to the operations because you know it's much more exciting to find deals and raise money than operating something over five years. I'm just saying, and I'm the same way. Okay, I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. Okay, I won't lie. Okay, but you gotta focus on the man. Someone on your team, has got to focus on the operations. And whoever does that, they're going to be good at it and they're probably going to love it, right? So so Daniel, for example, he actually enjoys the management. He loves that. He's really good at it. You got to find a person like that. It's either going to be one of your partners or it's going to be a team member, either full-time or part-time, whatever you can afford, invest in that business. That is really my message to you today here. If you're interested, you're listening to this and you're like, this is great, Michael. You know, how can I learn more? Definitely check out our, our mentoring if you want to be on the active side of things. Check 
check us out there. Uh, if you're interested in passively investing with us, we'd love to have a conversation with you at nighthawkequity.com and just click the join button. You can join our investor club. You fill out a short form and that allows you to schedule a call with us and we can explore investing with you in one of our upcoming opportunities. We'll love to have a conversation with you. So hope you guys found that useful in your investing strategy on your path of financial freedom. Thank you very much and I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.